The word of the Lord, which came on to Sephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the name of the Kimarims with the priests. And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm, and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now, as I say, this uh, little little book, Zephaniah, is just three uh, chapters long. It's one of the most overlooked passages of Scripture. And as you saw by our instant survey on Sunday morning, uh, seemingly nobody had the slightest idea what the book of Zephaniah was about. And to be fair, that was not altogether surprising. This is a book that isn't even cross-referenced in the New Testament, which is quite unusual for Old Testament books. And yet this book has a great deal to offer us. Now, in the opening verse, Zephaniah identifies himself as a descendant of King Hezekiah. So he is the royal uh, prophet. He's off the royal line. Uh, we know, not only know where he came from, but we also know when he ministered. He prophesied, according to this opening verse, in the days of King Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he's a contemporary with uh, the prophet Jeremiah. The king, King Josiah, was a good king. He was a godly king. He was a king who was credited with bringing revival uh, to Judah. Uh, he dispensed with idolatry in the land, and he reestablished the worship of the Lord. Uh, but the changes he made in Israel and Judah were rather superficial. Uh, on the outside, it looked like everybody was complying to the law and worshiping the Lord. But actually, internally, there was no real change among the people. There was reformation in the land, but there had not been regeneration in the hearts of the people. So he spoke of the coming day of the Lord. And this is a phrase that appears in Scripture uh, some 25 times. And really, it's a phrase that refers to any time that God intervenes uh, in the affairs of men with judgment. But ultimately, it refers to the last great move of God uh, in human history when Christ himself shall appear to judge the world in righteousness. So in a general sense, uh, the term refers to, in terms of prophecy, to that period uh, from the rapture to the end of the millennial kingdom. So it takes in the seven-year uh, tribulation period and the 1,000-year uh, millennial reign of Christ on earth. And so in that respect, it, uh, it operates as all, uh, all Jewish days do. It begins in darkness and it ends in light. Remember, a Jewish day doesn't begin at 6 o'clock in the morning. It begins at 6 o'clock in the evening. So the Jews begin their days in darkness and then 
uh, the dawning comes uh, afterwards. And it's quite the opposite of ourselves. So this book is focused upon that day of darkness, on the moment of darkness that precedes the dawning of the kingdom age. And it speaks of a time of retribution, which is followed by restoration. So when Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord, which he refers to 19 times in all. Now remember, this is a phrase that appears 25 times in Scripture, 19 times in this little book. So that tells you the theme of the book. Uh, he's speaking in the first instance of Babylonian captivity. Remember, the Old Testament prophets often gave their prophecies which had a near fulfillment and then a distant fulfillment. It had something pertinent to the people to whom they were writing, but then something prophetical for people of a future age. And that's exactly what you see here. He's, going to, he's telling these people that God is going to judge them, that they're heading into Babylon. They'll be there, we know from Jeremiah, that they'll be there for 70 years. Uh, but there's a second, far greater event known as the Day of the Lord, which is going to encapsulate not just Judah, but the whole earth. And the Lord will judge the Gentile nations and save Israel unto himself. So this is a prophecy that impacts upon our time as much as it does uh, as it did upon the time of those uh, who received it in the first instance. So we want to look tonight at Zephaniah's prophecy and see exactly how the prophet portrayed the coming day of the Lord. And the first thing I want to think about is the conditions before the day of the Lord. What will it be like just before the Lord returns? What was it like just before he acted in judgment against Judah during Zephaniah's days? Well, if we compare the days of Zephaniah, we'll see some parallels between his day and our day. Now, understand, as I've said, he's, reign, he's ministering under the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was a good king. He was a godly king. His intentions were honorable. He rid Israel of idolatry. He restored the worship of Jehovah. He brought about spiritual reform of sorts. Now, some even speak of him as being the king who brought about revival. But if it was a revival, it was a very shallow revival. And that's why when you read the book of Zephaniah, you don't hear any praise for the people. You don't hear any thanksgiving for the fact that they had all come back to the Lord. You don't hear uh, Zephaniah saying anything remotely positive about the people to whom he is writing. And there's certainly no mention of revival or even of reformation. You see, here's the thing. God always sees beyond the surface condition, doesn't he? And uh, we can put on a good front. We can make things look good. But the Lord always looks upon the heart. And he doesn't always read our publicity. He reads the heart. And the hearts of the men in the days of King Josiah and in the days of Zephaniah the prophet were very far from the Lord. Notice in verse 4, they were days of sensuality. That's the first thing I want you to see. They were days marked by an appetite for sensuality. The Lord says, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Kimmerims with the priests. Now, although outwardly these people were given their allegiance to Jehovah, inwardly they were still worshipping Baal or Baalim. And, uh, you know, the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Old Testament, it abounds with warnings about the worship of Baal. It wasn't very long ago that there was an image of Baal that was set up on a plinth in uh, Trafalgar Square in London, and uh, people honored it. The same image was put up in Times Square in New York, and it traveled the world, believe it or not, an image of Baal, this ancient 
fertility god was traveling the world and people were uh, giving uh, abeyance to it and uh, and so it's a very ancient god it was a god of nature a god of fertility the farmers thought that from the belim or fertility gods came an increase in their crops in their fruit in their cattle and so accompanying this worship of Baal there were lascivious rites that took place there was very promiscuous behavior that took place uh, around Baal worship uh, they sacrificed their children to idols if you notice uh, there in verse 5 it talks about them that swear by Malcolm that's a particular form of Baal in, in which the uh, image was set up having cradled arms and at the foot of the image there was a furnace raised and uh, children, uh, people would come with their babies and put their babies in the arms of this uh, grotesque idol. And then the priests would pull a lever and the arms would drop and the babies would drop alive into the fire and be roasted uh, as a sacrifice unto Baal. It was a wicked form of religion. And Baal worship was also associated with the worship of the goddess Ashtoreth, uh, according to Judges 2.13. In the vicinity of his altar, there was often what was known as an Asherah, which was a phallic uh, symbol, which was central to his uh, worship. Now, Ashtoreth was the goddess of sexual love, of maternity and fertility. And around the worship of Ashtoreth, there was uh, prostitution, uh, as, uh, which was, uh, was uh, marked as a religious rite in the service of this goddess. And so Baal and Ashtaroth incorporated all kinds of immoral, sensual, sexual activity. Uh, and so how does this have any bearing upon us? Well, I don't think you need to look very far. We don't have any children here tonight, so I can speak freely and I say this. I don't think you have to look very far around us to realize that we are living in a sex-obsessed society. You know, our society is sick, really, when you look at it. And, uh, you know, you can't have missed all this uh, carrying on about uh, your man Russell Brand uh, in the news this week. But listen, I remember when that fella first appeared on television and thought to myself, even then he was a reprobate, even before they got to this stage. Anybody with two brain cells in their head could tell you that he wasn't a good character. Uh, and yet with all, the, they're all holding their hands up now and saying, oh, what a terrible man he was. And, but they knew all along what kind of man he was. And he played to society's obsession with sexual things and sensual things. And if you don't think society is, is swamped with this stuff, you know, just take some time and watch a few movies. And you'll be surprised. Even in movies that have, seem to have no sexual content or no, no, uh, no sense of, of direction in that regard, you'll often find there are scenes in the movie that are objectionable. Simply put in there by the filmmakers to titillate audiences. Uh, the same thing with uh, a lot of the music videos. Uh, I was very interested last week in the Daily Mail, the columnist Sarah Vine asked this question, which is a question I've asked myself for years and years and years. She said this, Why does no one seem to care what these vile pornographic music videos are doing to our young women and men? And so if you were to look at a lot of the pop music videos today, uh, they're not harmless fun. They are foul and they are foul and they are filled with the most sensual, uh, lewd, lascivious lyrics. Uh, and you know, I'm glad that somebody else has seen these things uh, for what they are. But really she is uh, she's swimming against the tide in that respect. 
Uh, you know, a few years ago, we had that bombing in Manchester the, at the Ariana Grande uh, concert. And Ariana Grande was considered to be, is considered to be a pop star that appeals to primary school children. And hence, there were a lot of primary school children caught up in that terrible explosion. But if you listen to the lyrics or you were, to, you were to analyze what she's singing, what she is singing is absolutely inappropriate for little boys and for little girls. In fact, it's inappropriate for grown men and for grown women. Never mind little boys and little girls. So we're living in days not unlike the days in which Sephaniah ministered. They were days also marked by an aptitude for superstition. Look at verse 5. It says that God is also going to judge them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. They're going to worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. In other words, there were people who were active in the fields of astrology and who were sun worshippers and moon worshippers, superstitious people, stargazers, uh, I think I told you this before. I don't know if I, if I did, but I'll tell you again. When I was uh, 16, I got a job uh, in the Belfast newsletter. Uh, I just left school and uh, I had a summer job. My dad got it for me and he worked there. And, and uh, my job was a very simple job. Uh, at that time, of course, it, things weren't digitally done then. You had to manually provide information for journalists. And so I had a very simple job. I just had to run up and down three or four flights of stairs to different departments and I would take news, uh, newsprint and I would bring it down to journalists who would then uh, reproduce it for the newspaper. So there'd be like these teleprompter things that would come in with news stories from the Associated Press and other uh, press agencies. I would rip those things off. They would be divided up into whatever department it was, sports or, uh, or news, or international news or whatever, financial news. And I would take it to the various editors. And that's all I did. Very simple job. But my very last job at the end of the evening was this, was to get the stars for the next day, the astrological readings. Now, do I look like someone who reads the stars to you? I wasn't a Christian then, so even then I didn't read the stars. Uh, But here's what I did. The editor would come to me at the last of the evening, and he would say to me, David, go and get the stars for tomorrow. And over in the corner of the, of the newsroom, there was a table and there was a great big pile of A4 sheets of paper. And I would just put my hand in there and pull out one and hand it to the editor. And he would print that the next day as your daily stars. And people were betting their lives in those things. You know, they were swearing by them. What's your stars say today? Little did they know that there was a spotty 16-year-old teenager that was pulling their future out of, a, out of a pile of papers in the corner of a dusty editor's office. But there are people who swear by these things. And, you know, people are superstitious today, just they were superstitious in Sephaniah's day. Uh, men have always been superstitious. One of the mainstream broadcasters uh, conducted a poll a while back that showed people still practice the ancient superstitions of touching wood so that they don't tempt fate. 40% of people did that, you know, touch wood. Uh, never opening an umbrella indoors in case it brings bad luck upon you. 20% of people practice that. Never walking under a ladder in case that brought bad luck on you. That probably makes good health and safety sense. Uh, but 17% of people avoid that in order to avoid bad luck, so-called. Uh, believing horoscopes uh, that will reveal the truth about your love, life, about your career and money matters. 15% of people believe that horoscopes will tell them their future. But even more interesting than that is the fact that people have now created modern superstitions. 
So those are some of the very ancient superstitions. But now we have modern ones, uh, such as you'll see footballers who wear a particular piece of clothing. You know, they'll wear a particular uh, set of underwear or a particular pair of socks or something to ensure success. And other people will do that. People will do that in society. 24% of people in society, in our society, say they have a lucky piece of clothing that they wear if they want things to go their way. Uh, Picking numbers that mean something to you personally uh, when you're selecting lottery numbers. 22% of people uh, believe in that. And so they choose birthdays, anniversaries, days, uh, dates that are important to them and believe that that is how they can then secure a prize with the lottery. Uh, here's another one. Looking a person in the eye when saying cheers and clinking glasses in order to avoid seven years of bad luck. You ever notice it's always seven years of bad luck? It's ever three and a half years. But there's three and a half years of terrible luck if you consider luck coming at the uh, latter half of the tribulation. But that's another story. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, that, that, what, a, what a crazy idea. And then this other thing that came along with the internet, which amazed me at the time. You don't see so much of it now. But when people first started sending emails to each other, they used to get these chain mails that you had to forward this email on and if you didn't forward it on something terrible was going to happen to you and 14% of people passed those things on for fear that something was going to happen to them just because some lunatic somewhere sent them this email they thought that their life was going to be uh, irrevocably damaged if they didn't pass it on and so they did so for all of our crowing about our technological advancement and living in this space age. When you boil it all down, guess what we are? We're a bunch of superstitious idolaters just the same as our forefathers were. Sephaniah's days were marked by superstition. They were also days that were marked by an approval of syncretism. If you look on down here, uh, verse 5, the latter part part of verse 5, he speaks about them that worship uh, and that swear by the Lord and swear by Malcolm. Those are two different gods. Syncretism is just that. It's the marriage of the pagan uh, with the the true, uh, with the holy, the unholy with the holy, the the heathen ideas with the, the biblical ideas. And so, you know, this is a fusion of differing systems of belief. Here, the god Malcolm, or elsewhere he's known in scriptures, Moloch, was worshipped alongside the Lord. As though they were equals or peers. Now, we have a name for this. We call it pluralism. You go into schools today, and in many schools, the Lord is just one of many gods. You know, he's up there with Shiva. He's up there with Buddha. He's up there with Allah. Uh, you know, he's not considered better or superior uh, to those pagan gods. He's just another god among many. And this was, again, a hallmark of the days of uh, Sephaniah. So, you know, we see that working itself out in our own society. Our government promotes pluralism. Uh, Just last year, the uh, World Council of Churches met in Germany. World Council of Churches has this very idea. They approve syncretism. Uh, and the idea that you can mingle Christianity even with ancient religions, with American Indian spirituality, with Hinduism and other forms of pagan religion. And uh, in that respect, that was the state of the nation in Sephaniah's day, is the state of the nation in our day. And then those days were also marked by a certain degree of secularism. If you look at verse 6, and says, And them that turn back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for him. So here were people living in a time of supposed revival, 
who were totally indifferent to all matters of religion and unconcerned about the truth of God. They sought not the Lord, nor did they inquire of him. You know, it's very interesting. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, I think it was the last time we had a day of national prayer in our country was during the Second World War. And uh, during the COVID pandemic, it was put to the government that it would be a good idea to have a national day of prayer. The government rejected it out of hand. They wouldn't even consider it for a nanosecond. Uh, they dismissed it in an instant. And uh, so it was in, in, in Stephanias' day. You know, for all our talk about being a Christian nation, there's the, there's the proof of the matter. Uh, when, the, when the rubber hit the road and we were in a, bit, in a crisis, as we saw it then, uh, were we prepared to have a national day of prayer? No, we weren't. Our government didn't want it because our people didn't want it. And if you notice how fashionable it is now to, to say that you're an atheist, suddenly everybody's an atheist. And uh, even in all of the movies and all of the TV shows now, very often at some point the matter of God will come up and the hero or heroine will say that he or she doesn't believe in God and is having some crises of faith concerning God. So we've become a society where God and the Word of God is being sidelined, squeezed out both in practice and in principle. What does that happen? What happens then when a society is in that state? When a society is sold to sensuality, when it's given itself to superstition, when it heralds syncretism, uh, and when it adopts an attitude of secularism? Well, what happens is you end up with condemnation of the Lord, condemnation by the day of the Lord. Look at verse 7. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests. And grammatically, this this verse stresses the phrase at hand. In fact, in the original language, the word at the terms at hand is at the beginning of the sentence. At hand is the day of the Lord. It is near. Uh, Verse 1 literally says, "Near uh, near is the great day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord. So uh, it's emphasizing that this is a day that is really hurtling toward us, that we are heading toward certain judgment, that we set our face against God, that all the characters, characteristics of apostasy are present in the land, and we are on a collision course with the Almighty. Now, as far as the people of Judah went in Sephaniah's day, within 17 years of this prophecy, they were carried off to Babylon. They were made subject to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And seven years after that, their city was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and 10,000 Jews were deported. And then just 11 years beyond that, the city was entirely destroyed. So this was Sephaniah's primary message that you're going to face the judgment of God. But Sephaniah had a prophetic message. He saw a day coming when not just Judah, but the entire Gentile world as well would face God's wrath. This is the hour of Christ's return. Uh, Let's look at chapter 1 here, verse 15. It says, That day, uh, speaking of the the great... Let's go to verse 14. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. Near is the day of the Lord. And hasteth greatly. This is something that is coming at us like a steam train. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. 
That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So in the day that the Lord of the Lord, the day of Christ's coming, uh, will be a day of bad news for a world that's caught out. You see, here's the thing. The world isn't expecting the Lord to come. In fact, the world believes, believe it or not, the world thinks there's a greater possibility of us being invaded by aliens from space than there is of Jesus Christ returning. And that's a fact. That's a fact. If you were to go to the bookies, not that I recommend that, but if you were to go to the bookies and say to them, listen, I want to put £10 bet down. And they said, what do you want to bet on? You say, well, I want to bet either on the return of Christ or an alien invasion. What are the odds? They would give you better odds for an alien invasion than they would for the return of Christ. That's a fact. They'd give you better odds actually for a zombie invasion than they would for the return of Christ. And yet the Lord says, listen, you better listen up. This day is coming. I am coming. And I am going to deal with my creation. I'm going to deal with mankind. So, you know, we need to pay attention to this. People need to pay attention to this. Look at 2 Thessalonians for a moment. 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 7, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So that day is coming. It's a day of wrath. It's a day of vengeance. It's a day of uh, trouble, a day of distress, a day of wasteness, of desolation, of darkness, of gloominess. I don't think God could say any more about it, really. It's not a day that you're looking forward to, is it? If you've got sense. You're reading that verse, verse 15. You're not reading that verse and thinking to yourself, that sounds like a good day. It sounds like an awful day, a foreboding day. Now, among those who will be punished in that day uh, will be the dissident. The dissident will be condemned. Look in verse 8 of Sephaniah. And it shall come to pass in that day, in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now, here's the interesting thing here. The Lord identifies their dress, their clothing, as being an issue that identifies them with his enemies. He talks about strange apparel. Now, he doesn't mean strange as in peculiar, but he means strange as in alien. Belonging to another culture. 
belonging to another religion. So Josiah's sons were wearing the latest fashions from Ninevite and Babylonian catwalks. They were wearing the worldly clothing. And the implication is that by adopting foreign dress, these people were adopting foreign values and foreign practices. You know something? And, and honestly, a lot of preachers won't touch on this, but this is the truth. The way we dress says a lot about what we believe. The way we dress says a lot about what we believe. And the Christian is called upon to dress modestly. Not in a way that draws attention to themselves, and certainly not in a way that emphasizes the sensual. And now when I say that you're to dress modestly, I'm not suggesting that you have to dress like the Amish. You know, I'm not suggesting you have to be a nun, okay, or something like that. Uh, you know, dress just in one color, you know, or be like a, uh, an Islamic lady with her burqa on and all of that. That's not what we're saying here. Um, but what we are saying here is that we ought not to dress in such a way as we follow every single worldly trend and we dress just like the world dresses and look just like the world looks and act just like the world acts. And in so doing, we would identify ourselves with those who stand in opposition to the truth of God. Interesting that God identified dress as an issue amongst those who were the dissidents against his rule. Then he also is going to deal with the despicable. Look here in verse 9. And the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. So this is a condemnation upon those who would oppress and pillage people in their own homes. Do we have people who do that today, who oppress and pillage people in their own homes? You ever get a phone call? It tells you that there's a problem with your computer. And this person's going to fix it for you. You know, I remember they called my dad and he was like 70 years of age, 75 years of age. They called him and said, you know, we called you to tell you there's a problem with your computer. My dad says, I don't think there is. He says, no, there is. We've detected it. My dad says, I don't even own a computer. <laughs> What's going on there? What's going on there is there's people who are despicable, who take advantage of the elderly and the vulnerable, and they abuse those people. And in many cases, they are robbing tens of thousands of pounds out of their bank account. Literally millions and millions and millions of pounds are stolen from people in their own homes by means of people who are despicable. God says, when I come, when the day of the Lord comes, I'm dealing with these people, those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And then he's going to deal not just with the despicable, but with the, the uh, dishonest. Look in verse 10 and 11. It's not just those who market your home, but those also who market uh, in, the, uh, in the open market. And shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and a howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. Now, Maktesh was the commercial district of Jerusalem. It was the marketplace. And this is a condemnation of greed and materialism. And again, you see that in our society. I mean, if you just look over recent months, you've got to ask yourself, you know, this question, you know, all right, there's been inflation and there's been a, you know, a global economic downturn. 
But does every single business have to jack up its rates? You know, has every single company got to, got to make, take advantage of that? Because it seems to me there are some companies for whom there is no material issue. In other words, they're not buying in materials, but they're dealing with intellectual property, and they're throwing their prices up. For a good example would be the insurance companies. You know, if you look at your insurance, your home insurance this year, you'll probably find it's up by about a third. Why is that? They'll give you all kinds of reasons. Oh, the war in Ukraine. Really? The war in Ukraine is going to affect my house in Laurelville? Suddenly I've got to worry about the Russians coming in and burning my house down? Is this the problem? Oh, if it's not the war in Ukraine, it's the rising oil prices. Well, what's that going to do in my house? I'm not driving the house, I'm just living in the house. But they're, they're taking advantage. And you find that right throughout society, not just in, I'm glad Andrew Brown isn't here tonight, but not just, not just in, in, in uh, insurance, but right throughout the whole marketplace. There are people who take advantage and who seek to extract every penny from you. And then there's the disinterested, and we see them in verse 12. Uh, it says, It shall come to pass at that time I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. So here's a picture of the Lord wandering the streets of Jerusalem, searching out those who have been indifferent to his name, those who think he's not going to do anything one way or the other. They're kind of uh, indifferent and, and disregarding of his name. And it says he's going to punish those who settled on their knees. What does that mean? Well, it's a word picture. It plays on wine. And uh, when, wine, when a wine bottle is empty and it gets to the bottom, what would happen in ancient times is there would be a crust would form uh, on the top of the dregs of the wine. And so uh, you couldn't drink then what was beneath that crust. What was beneath the crust was too bitter to be drunk. And so the picture here is of people who are hard on the outside and bitter on the inside. Have you ever noticed how bitter people are against God now? You know, people are angry with God. And you're like, well, why are you angry with God? You know, I remember when I first went to Milton in England and and uh, very, I wasn't even pastor at this point. I was just candidating uh, and considering being the pastor at that point. And, as, and the church had a wee manse. It was about half a mile away from their building. And I stayed in that manse and I came down the street on the Sunday, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, going to church. And uh, four teenagers uh, stopped me on the way down and asked me who I was and what I was doing because I was a stranger in the area. And I told them who I was and what I was doing. And uh, then I invited them to church and the first, the first comment that came back to me when I invited these four teenage boys to the church was one boy who said, right off the bat, he says, uh, he says, me and God don't get along. I hate God. And I looked at this little boy and I said, why would you hate God? God loves you. Why would you hate God when God loves you? I said, you don't know God. If you knew God, you'd think differently about him. And I invited them to the church and they all came to church. Uh, but, you know, but here's the thing. A lot, that little boy really voiced, voiced the thinking of a lot of people in society. This is a society that hates God. It's a society that's become hard on the outside 
and bitter on the inside. And so what's, what's going to happen? What's going to become of the, such a society? Well, here we read it already. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, verse 7. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near, verse 14. And hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Now, let's go to the end of the book. And we're going to talk about comfort in the day of the Lord. Because if I were to spend the rest of this evening going through this book, it would be a repeat of everything that I've just said, okay? The book constantly hammers home the wickedness of man, the righteousness of God, the certain judgment of the ungodly. But you get to chapter 3, and all of that changes. Chapter 3 and verse 8 ends this way. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 8, the very last line it says, For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. But when you come to verse 9, you now have a new tone set. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. So one moment, everyone is being devoured with the fire of his jealousy. The next moment, they're all calling upon the name of the Lord and serving him with one consent. What happens between verses 8 and verse 9? Here's what happens. The Lord comes at the end of the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom begins. That's what happens, all right? So if, if, you, if you make notes in your Bible, it might be a good idea to write that in there between verses, nine and, uh, verses 8 and 9, write in millennial kingdom and you'll know what's happening here on. Okay, so uh, chapter uh, 3 and verse 9 then begins with this new tone. And notice what it says, For then I will turn to the people a pure language. That is, unclean lips and unclean tongues are going to be cleansed. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. You know the passage well. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, the wonderful call of Isaiah the prophet as he sees the heavenly vision. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord also sitting upon a throne high and lifted up his tree and filled the temple. You get down to verse 5, and he says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eye hath seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's the reality. When you see the Lord in all of his glory, you'll realize how filthy your heart and, and, and tongue is. And then verse 6 says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. In other words, he became someone of pure speech. And uh, that's what the word means. Pure means chosen. It means polished. Uh, it means clean. You know, sometimes I wish I was a more polished preacher. Uh, if you were listening to Dr. Adrian Rogers, who's one of my favorite preachers, um, Adrian Rogers is so polished. It's incredible. Uh, and, you know, I watch him preach and I think, oh, <laughs> he's so good. <laughs> and I'm so average. <laughs> And you know what? But someday I will be a polished preacher because the Lord's going to polish my tongue. <laughs> and so, and, and, he's, and he'll polish yours as well. Uh, and you'll have a clean tongue. 
And, uh, you know, the Lord says that, uh, you know, that out of the heart the mouth speaketh. He talks about the, the lewd and terrible things that come, blasphemous things that come off uh, the, the lips of people that indicate a, a sinful heart. Now, this is the language of heaven. Sevaniah uh, chapter 3 and verse 9. Then I will turn to the people a pure language. This is the Lord's language, so to speak. Um, you know, you say, well, what language is it? You know, there's only one place in the Bible that Jesus is said to speak from heaven where the language is identified. And that is in the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. And it's interesting what it says there, that it says that he spoke to him in verse 14 in the Hebrew tongue. It says, And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, some people have suggested that Hebrew was the language spoken in the beginning. Uh, then it will be the language that will be spoken in the end. I don't know if that's true. That is entirely uh, you know, supposition. I certainly couldn't say that with 100% confidence. But what is interesting is that there is a pure language, and that's a singular uh, term. Whatever it is, there is but one language in heaven, and there will be one language in the millennial kingdom. Uh, this is interesting, I think, because when you think about it, where did languages come from? They came from the Tower of Babel. They were a judgment of God upon a rebellious people who, like the people of Zephaniah's day, worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so the Lord judged men by confusing their languages. Uh, But before that point, everybody spoke in the same tongue. When you get to the end, everybody will speak in a pure tongue. It's one language. Now, this is important because it creates a problem for anybody who would uh, would be a tongues speaker and who tells you that tongues speaking is speaking an angelic language, a heavenly language. Well, the problem with that is that 1 Corinthians introduces the gift of tongues as a plurality of tongues, diverse kinds of tongues. Well, there aren't diverse kinds of tongues in heaven because if there was that would suggest the same thing happened in heaven as happened on earth. No, heaven's unified in its tongue. And when the kingdom comes, we will be unified in our tongue. And everybody in the entire earth will speak Hebrew with a county Armagh accent. What a blessing. <laughs> Can you imagine speaking Hebrew? I don't even think about that. Anyway, verse 9. Uh, verse 9 is a turning point. So we've come to this new day dawning, and, uh, and the, dawn, the darkness has given way to the dawn. And from verse 9 onward, if you read on down this passage, it's not judgment, it's about restoration. And Sephaniah is looking forward not only to the return of Israel's exiles from Babylon, but ultimately to the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And this is ever God's way. First he permits, then he punishes, ultimately he perfect. And in the end, Israel is restored, uh, sorry, redeemed, cleansed, and restored. Now, Zephaniah paints one last picture, and I want you to see it in verse 17. So he talks about the pure speech, and then he talks about, finally, a pure song in verse 17. He says, and let's read verse 16 and 17, in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And I love this. 
he will joy over thee with singing. You know, this is the only place in the entire word of God where God, Jehovah, is said to be singing. Isn't that interesting? The only place you'll find that the Lord God is singing is Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. And notice the theme of his song. He will joy over thee with singing. He's going to rejoice in his redeemed. He's going to sing about those who are saved. Uh, Here he is, you know, resting in his love for us, and it resonates with song. And I don't know what the Lord is going to sing. You know, like yourselves, you've probably heard many, many people over the years sing in churches. Some people are great singers. Some people shouldn't be let out, okay? Uh, That's the truth. I mean, I've heard some pretty woeful singers in church too. Uh, But thankfully, most singers are good singers, and they bless your heart, and they encourage your soul. But listen, no song will sound quite like this song. Here comes the Lord as history draws to its close and has run its course. And as he prepares to make all things new, what does he do? He sings. He sings and serenades his people with a love song. Let me tell you something. When God sings, everyone will listen. Everyone will listen. Now, where does that leave us today? Well, it leaves us living, sadly, in an age totally given to sensuality, given to superstition, and rejoicing in syncretism, and sold on secularism. And we're not fixing any dates, uh, you know, nor do we set any limit upon the Lord, but surely, you know, looking at society as it stands right now, we are in the last of the last days, those days that just precede the coming of the Lord. And that's why the Lord says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the Lord God is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. Near is the great day of the Lord. It is near and hasteth greatly. I wonder, are we living in the light of his soon appearing? I wonder, is your life as a Christian surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, someday, and I'm speaking to us as believers now, We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's not about our salvation. Our salvation was settled at the cross of Calvary. Okay, so that's not about whether you're saved or whether you're lost. But the judgment seat of Christ is where we as Christians give an account of ourselves to God. And there the Lord Jesus will issue rewards or not issue a reward accordingly. And here's the question. What's it going to be for us in that day? Bearing in mind where we are, if you like, on the timeline of history, that we're on the cusp of the second coming of the Lord, how will we fare at his judgment seat? Will it be reward or will it be reproach? My friends, the signs are everywhere around us. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. Next week, Lord willing, we will uh, pick up the book of Haggai. And uh, Haggai is a, an amazing prophecy. Uh, and actually, the, the, we change direction altogether because all of the minor prophets up to now, the first nine, have all been dealing with uh, 
pre-exilic Israel before they go into judgment. But the last three of the minor prophets are dealing with post-exilic Israel uh, after they've come back into the land. They've come back into Jerusalem and they have to resettle and build the temple and so on. And uh, it's, it's 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 a different flavor than many of the books that we've dealt with so far in this series. All right, we'll leave it there for this evening.